1: helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This marks the 75th episode of the show. My heartfelt thanks to you for tuning in. I am grateful for your enthusiastic support and desire to grow in being more skillful in how you communicate and helping those around you to do the same. And I am practically jumping out of my chair with joy about my esteemed guest today. Few people in the world have influenced the day-to-day management of people and companies as much as he has. The author or co-author of 65 books and counting. In 2005, he was inducted into the Amazon's Hall of Fame as one of the top 25 best-selling authors of all time. Today, his works have sold a mind-blowing 21 million copies worldwide. Passionate about helping every leader be a servant leader, he shared his powerful insights and messages, speaking with audiences all around the world. He's co founder and chief spiritual officer of the international management training and consulting firm that he and his wife began in 1979. And he's co founder of the Lead Like Jesus Ministry, teaching people about servant leadership worldwide. And both he and his wife are impassioned alums of Cornell, my beloved alma mater as well. Go big red. So you'll be hearing from the co-author of the iconic 1982 classic, The One Minute Manager, that alone has sold more than 13 million copies and remains a bestseller today. I could not be more honored to welcome none other than the respected, revered, and adored Ken Blanchard. Ken, welcome to Say It Skillfully.
2: It's good to be with you, Molly. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Uh, I have been as well, my friend. As listeners know, at the core, saying it skillfully is being grounded in who you are, which you exude. Born in New Jersey, raised in New York, bachelor's, master's, doctorate degrees, on your way to storyteller extraordinaire and chief spiritual officer. It's a huge wow. So please, Ken, take listeners back to the beginning. Share the twists, the turns, ups and downs of your journey.
2: Well, it's interesting, (coughs) Molly. I was really blessed to have two wonderful parents. My father grew up at West Point where the U.S. Military Academy is. His father was a doctor there and he uh, loved West Point and sat in the back when Douglas MacArthur gave his graduation speech and was there and he wanted to go to West Point and his father said, son, no, I think you should go away to school. And so he said, if I can't go here, then I'll go to the Naval Academy. And he went to Annapolis and graduated in 1924, but they didn't need many Naval officers in 24, they thought, because we had just ended World War One, And so they dismissed him after his senior cruise. And in January 25, he uh, entered Harvard Business School, to major in finance. And in the summer, in between his semesters, he would live with his parents up in Highland Falls, where West Point was, and take the train into New York, where he was working. And he met my mother on the train. And my mother was interesting because her family were... German immigrants and her father was a, a cop in, in Fordham and she was the only one of five kids who graduated from high school and she was a, an executive secretary for Cosmopolitan magazine and, and she would get on the train and the train would never be the same. My mom is really full of the uh, devil and, and my father said to a friend, who's that dizzy flapper? And a friend said, she's not dizzy, that's Dottie Heidenreich. Good German name, and uh, and so he asked to meet her, and they rode into town, and and she had her sneakers on and her shoes in a bag, and and said, "Nice to meet you," and thought she'd never see him again, and he was waiting for her uh, when the train was going back home, you know, because he said, "Why would he want to see me?" You know, he, I mean, I never went to college, and he's at you know Naval Academy, Harvard Business School, and my father had never met anybody like her, and so. Uh, they ended up getting married. And, and <clears throat> so in, in 1940, I was one year old, uh, Molly, and he came home and he said to my uh, mom, he said, well, I quit uh, my job today. You know, he's was about to be a vice president of National City Bank. And she said, to do what? He said, I rejoined the Navy. You know, she said, you got to be kidding me. He said, well, didn't I tell you when we got married, if the country ever got in trouble, I thought I owed it something. And he said Hitler's crazy, and the Japanese will be in this before we uh, can count on it. And and so he goes from a vice president to a second Louis. They put him put him in Brooklyn Navy Yard, and uh, uh, Pearl Harbor happens, and looks like he's going to stay there. He's 40 years old with no experience, and that wasn't my dad's style. One of his classmates had stayed in, and was a top guy in the Bureau of Personnel for the Navy in Washington. He called him. And he said. John, what do you got for an old fart in the action? I got to get in the action. He said, Ted, let me check on it. And he called back a couple of days later. He said, Ted, unfortunately, the only thing I have for you with your little experience is a suicide group going into the Marshall Islands. And he said, you got your man. And they bumped him up to a <coughs> Commodore and gave him 12 LCIs, these landing craft <coughs> infantry. And they led the Marines of the Frogmen into Saipan, Kwajalein, Anaheim, Taktini, and... 70% of his men were killed or wounded. I got a picture of a little boy. I was about five years old waiting at the station in a sailor suit to salute my dad home. He hadn't been home for two and a half years. And I just uh, say that to say that they were really pretty amazing people and taught me all kinds of values. I'll never forget, Molly, and then we'll go on to something else, but I won the president of the seventh grade in New Rochelle, New York. And it was an interesting because I went to a 90, 95% Jewish elementary school and Jewish holidays, they put us all in one room. And then I merged in junior high school with a, a 90% or higher African-American uh, elementary school that actually went to the Supreme Court in 61 to test a neighborhood school. And and uh, so uh, I, I think I won the, the Uh, elections, that's a compromise (laughs) candidate. So I come home, I'm the president of seventh grade and I tell my dad, he says, son, now that you're president of your class, this is the beginning of your leadership training. Now that you're president, don't ever use your position because great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. And my mother used to add on to that. Don't you act like you're better than anybody else. Don't let anybody else act like they're better than you either because there's a pearl of goodness in every human being dig for it and you'll find it. So that's amazing. little background I had. Huh?
1: Oh, <laughs> you are one lucky boy. What an amazing example.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was really is fun. And then I ended up getting to go to Cornell. I mean, and boy, that was uh that was fun. I, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time studying. I had a lot of fun. I was a, basketball player and played in the freshman team and made the varsity, but then decided to drink and play ball and <laughs> play in the fraternity league. And, uh, but it was fun. I was a government major. And it was a, and a philosophy minor. They were really exciting subjects. And, but I got interested because I was a dormitory counselor, one of the freshman dormitories. And, and I thought, wow, this will be fun. I ought to become a Dean of students, you know, and people said, well, if you do that, you got to go to graduate school. I said, graduate school, how am I going to do that? So I applied to a number of places, couldn't get in. And one of the associate deans had gotten a master's degree in education at Colgate University, not far from Cornell. And I said, you think you can get me in as a provisional student? He said, I'll try. And he did. And so I went over and I got it into a master's degree program in education. But the courses were boring compared to government so I'm thinking, God, I'm sitting at the bar at the Colgate Inn. Can't believe I'm gonna be here two years taking these courses. And just so happens a guy sitting on the stool next to me at the bar by the a Warren Ramshaw. And he had an uh, older guy, but he had just finished his PhD at Illinois and his wife was backpacking up. Uh, and I was telling my story. So why don't you come and major with me? I said, what's your department? He said, sociology. I said, what do they do? He said, we study leadership and groups and all. I said, well, that's interesting. You think you can get me in? Yeah. So I ended up getting a master's in sociology, you know. So I said, okay, i have ready to be a dean now. They said, no, you need a doctor's degree. I said, doctor's degree? you got to be kidding me. Those people are really bright. How am I going to do that? So I applied and couldn't get in anywhere. And <laughs> I had taken a course one summer to lighten my load in educational leadership from a, a guy who headed that department, the College of Agriculture at Cornell, and, so I called him and I said, Don, because there's only 10 in our class, I said, could you get me as a provisional student in your doctoral program? He said, yeah, I'll work it? And he did. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things in life, Molly, is don't let anybody tell you you can't do anything that you want to do. Keep on going. Keep on going.
1: <laughs> that is fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so now you're in this perfect place to be a dean. And so do you go and be a dean?
2: Well, it's interesting because <laughs> my uh, my faculty, uh, you know, I, I got interested. I thought it'd be kind of fun to teach, you know. And my faculty said, no, you better be an administrator because you can't write. <laughs> I learned, learned you could understand my writing. and Maybe that was confusing to them and. So I my first job is I went as assistant to the dean of a School of Business at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. And Harry Everts, who was the dean, said, Ken, I want you to teach a course. I'd never thought about teaching, Molly, because you know, in, in academia, if you don't publish, you perish, you know. So I said, I don't care anything about that. You know, I want you to teach. So Paul Hersey had just arrived and was chairman of the management department. So <coughs> Harry talked to him and put me in. His department asked me to teach a management, a basic management course, which wasn't any problem for me because I, my doctoral dissertation was in studying Fred Fiedler, who was the first situational leadership theorist. And after two weeks, I came home and said to my wife, Margie, teaching, this is what I ought to be doing. This is really fun. She said, what about writing? I said, I don't know. I'll figure something out. So I went over to see Hersey because I heard he taught a great course in December 66, I said, Paul, could I sit in on your leadership course next semester? He said, nobody edits my course. You want to take it for credit? You're welcome. I thought that's interesting. I had a PhD and he didn't. He wants me to take it for credit. So I asked Margie and she said, is he any good? I said, he's supposed to be great. She said, well, get your ego out of the way and take his damn course. So I had to convince the registrar to let me in. And so I took his course and wrote all the papers. And June 67, Paul comes into my Office says, Ken, I've been teaching leadership for 10 years. I think I'm better than anybody. And they want me to write a textbook, but I've been looking for a good writer like you to be a co author. Would you do that? And I laughed. I said, Man, we ought to be a great team. (laughs) So we wrote a book called Management of Organizational Behavior Utilizing Human Resources. So I went to the dean and said, I quit as an administrator because i got a book coming out. I'm going to be a faculty member. He said, "Can you can't quit. I said, why not? He said, because I was going to fire you. (laughs) I said, yeah, really? He said, yeah, you're a lousy administrator, which I was. And so it was kind of a photo finish between him firing me and me quitting. But then I became a teacher. And then I went to University of Massachusetts and uh, worked my way up to a full professor with tenure. And we got a sabbatical leave to... California. That was uh, only 42 years ago. So uh, we ended up starting our own company out here through the young president's organization. You, you familiar with that group? Uh,
1: oh, yeah. Young YPO is an amazing networking group. And, you know, I just am so um, smiley about the fact that you just were game on. It just strike me it just seems like you were just mowing through all of this. Did you really, did you know what you were doing or just all kind of came together? And then you and Margie were like, we're heading to California.
2: Well, we, did, we just decided to come out here. Cause Hersey and I were going to do the third edition to our book. And, uh, we had never been out here just to, to speak of. And after two months here, Margie said, we're not going back to Massachusetts, you know, summer in Massachusetts is two weeks of bad skating. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, we met these these young president people and I did some sessions and they said, what are you going to do at the end of the year? I said, we're going back to university. They said, no, you're not. I said, what are we going to do? He said, you're going to start your own company. We said, we can't even balance our own checkbook. How are we going to do that? (laughs) They said, we'll help you. And we had five corporation presidents, YPOers, one from San Diego, one from Oregon, one from Mexico city, one from Pennsylvania, one from Illinois, all flew out and, helped to start our company. And were our advisors for a number of years. And so this is the 42nd year of our company. And so here's Margie and I, who couldn't even balance our own checkbook, you know, starting our own company. And now it's, a, it's amazing. Our son, Scott, who's 55, is now the president. Our daughter, Debbie, who's 53, is the head of marketing. And Margie's brother, Tom, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, he's our CEO. And and Scott's wife, Madeline, is our head of our coaching business. And so it's a family-run business, but we got 225 folks helping us around the world. And so it's a it's been a wonderful thing. So another thing I'd say to people is don't let anybody tell you again what you can't do. Don't say no to yourself and all. You know, if somebody says you thinks you can do something, well, give it a try. The worst thing you can do is learn. I had a wonderful time, Molly. I'm wrote a book with Norman Vincent Peale when he was 86 years old. He wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And he said, Ken, if you stop learning, lie down and let them put the dirt on you because you're already dead. <laughs> 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 so so I, <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly learning. I just recently celebrated the 60th anniversary of my 21st birthday. And people say, Blanchard. Should you should be retiring? I said, Are "You kidding me? I'm refiring." In fact, I wrote a book called "Refire, Don't Retire," make the rest of your life the best of your life.
1: Oh, it's just extraordinary. Okay, before we go to the 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 books, I have all these questions on the books. What does it mean to you to have the family Scotts involved, Scotts wife, everyone? I'm just wondering, like. Because that's also, I mean, there's so many things written about how difficult it can be to work with family members. So share with us, you know, how that came to be. Did you have at points where you at loggerheads, like this isn't going to work and then you figured it out. I mean, cause that's, it's very <clears throat> magical to do that.
2: Well, this is good advice for people who are listening, thinking about a family business is that when Scott and Debbie and Tom joined the company, um, this would be 25 years ago. Uh, Scott was the one that suggested because he had been working with a company that had hired a outside consultant to work with their family. And so we hired this fabulous guy, John Eldred from Pennsylvania uh, to be a consultant with our family. And ever since, and John worked for this the first 10 years and ever since we've had two other uh, consultants, we meet once a quarter for a whole day. We're, We're meeting this Thursday with an outside consultant uh, and, uh, because, uh, Peter Drucker told me years ago, nothing good happens by accident put some structure on it. And if you want to run a good family business, what can you do to make sure that it is? Well, if you meet a lot and you have an outside consultant, well, if anybody's got an issue, they go to our consultant first. And, and it's, uh, it's just been, uh, been wonderful to just, to, to see how that works and how we stay. And, we all vacation together in the summer and uh, back at Skinny Atlas Lake, which is right in between Syracuse and Cornell. And and somebody said to my son, Scott's wife, Madeline, you know, you work with them all the time. How come you vacation with them? she says, cause I love them. <laughs> so put some structure on it. Uh, get an outside consultant. Don't try to figure it out by yourself.
1: Oh, it's phenomenal the, um, the servant leadership. So just talk about the evolution, Paul, how did that, you know, when did that start? And then founding the lead like Jesus, you will know, share, because I just, you know, I think people hear this and I, I believe this, this whole foundation of we need love. It starts with love. And I think folks would kind of like nod their head like, yeah, I'm not really sure. And so just share with us, you know, how that came to you. You, you well, have the title of chief spiritual officer, you know?
2: Well, what's interesting, Molly, is that uh, uh, when the one-minute manager came out, you know, uh, I had really moved away from my faith, and so had Margie. We'd seen a lot of hypocrisy, and our kids were three or four when we kind of turned our backs, and you could have said that them at 18, give me the Lord's Prayer, or I'll hurt you. You would have had to hurt them. That's how far we came, but when this one-minute manager came out, we're on the Today Show, and Labor Day, 1982, and it goes on the New York Times bestseller list and doesn't get off for like three years. And it was so ridiculously successful. I was having trouble taking credit for it. People started saying, Ken, why do you think it was so popular? And I said, I don't know. God must be involved. And the minute I mentioned that, I get calls like, would I be on the Hour of Power with Robert Shula in his heyday? And he said, Ken, I love the one minute manager, but you know who's the greatest one minute manager of all time? I said, Who's that? He said, Jesus. I said, Really? He said, Yeah, he was really clear on goals. Isn't that your first secret one minute goal setting? Yeah. And he said, And you and Tom Peters didn't meant in management by wandering around. Jesus did. He wandered from one little village to another little village. If anybody showed any interest, they'd heal him. He'd, he'd praise him. Isn't that your second secret one minute praising? Yeah. The people stepped out of line. He wasn't afraid to give him a woman a reprimand. He threw the money lenders out of the temple. And not that your Thursday? Yeah. He said, well, he's the greatest woman and manager of all time. And so I got really fascinated. And I started to read the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I started to laugh, Molly, because everything I had ever taught about leadership, whether it was, you know, about using a situational approach or, or what have you, I mean, Jesus changed his style. The first commission, he told where to stay, what to do, this. They do this, dust off your feet. Then you see him go from directing to coaching to supporting to delegating. the delegating. And to Matthew, he says, go and make disciples. And that's about all he, he said. <clears throat> and he was, a, as Shulik pointed out, he was a classic one-minute manager. And so uh, that's when I ended up with my uh, Cornell fraternity brother, Phil Hodges, starting Lead Like Jesus, not to necessarily convert anybody, but to say, here's the greatest leadership role model of all time, because the important thing about leadership, Molly, isn't what happens when you're there. It's what happens when you're not there. You know I mean? You could be on top of your kids all the time, but what do they do when they're at school? What do they do when you're not around? What What do your people at work do when you're not around? And so uh, uh, Jesus as a leader has lasted a little bit, uh, regardless of what your faith uh, is. So, um, it's, uh, you know, maybe you hired these 12 incompetent guys. You wouldn't have hired that lot. Uh, so uh, it's been fun. But again, it's uh, things just kind of happen, you know. I tell people, they say, well, how do you be successful? I said, keep your head up and listen. You know, don't put your head down and grind your, into your job. Listen. People have suggestions. You know, something might come along, you know, that makes sense and give it a try be flexible be a, be loose be ready to say hmm, that's interesting i think i'll do that i mean margie and i we could never believe that we would you know be entrepreneurs you know we couldn't even spell a word
1: humility <laughs> <laughs> and lightness is so Fabulous! I want to package it in a bottle so I can like open (laughs) up and sniff it when I need to. So, this most important thing about leadership is what people do when you're not around. I hope folks are listening to that. That is a total keeper. Keep your head up and listen. Be flexible. Be loose. So, Ken, do you have? Do you remember making big mistakes at all? Was this just a natural for you? Like, obviously, now it just seems like it is. But did you have any, you know, like, oh my god, did I do that really moments?
2: I don't know, you know. Uh, I think Margie's prevented permit, me from making probably mistakes. You know, I'd say I'm thinking of doing this, and she never raised her voice. She says, "Can," <laughs> you know. Well, that's the end of that, really. And uh, so, it really is a partnership. I'm sure we must have had some failure experiences, but we can't remember anything because we think they're learning experiences. Like, uh, you know, you know Gary Ridge from heads up W D forty at WD forty he said there's no no mistakes, there's no things like that, there's only learning opportunities. And I I think that's what uh, Margie and I have done in our life. We've had learning opportunities, you know. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe we'll go this way. You know, what do you think of that? Well
1: <laughs> I love how in sync. I love how in sync you are about it. And as the kids were coming up, was it just a natural that they were going to gravitate to the business? Were you guys like, no, go do other things? You know, I, I'm wondering how they. Yeah.
2: Initially, no, we didn't think that at all. Uh, and uh, Scott was in the hotel school at Cornell. And, and so he had some really good opportunities. And he, his last job he was working at the hotel, hotel Del Coronado kind of helping run the kitchen <laughs> there uh, with all a bunch of people all older than he uh, and Debbie, uh, went to the University of Colorado and and she ended up going to New York and she was interested in retail and fashion and all those kind of things. And then uh, I think uh, when the business started to survive and started to grow, uh, Margie needed some extra help. And she uh, called her brother, Tom, who I said was born when she was a freshman at Cornell. And he, he was uh, in the uh, restaurant business and doing quite well. And and uh, she said, would you consider coming and working with me, you know, <laughs> and and be my right hand, which is really something because, you know, he was 18 years younger than Margie to come and work with his older sister. And he did. And when he jumped aboard, Scott and Debbie looked and said, hmm, you know, maybe there's something going on out there because Tom, he's a money grubber. He's a he's always looking for a good opportunity. <laughs> and uh so Tom's about four four or five years older than Scott and six years older than Debbie, but they've kind of grown up together and and um so it was uh, it's been uh been fun uh for them to to do that and come and work with us and see where we can, can go and, and grow and they've really grown tremendously, but they, we didn't come in and make them vice presidents. We came in and started them down at the bottom, you know.
1: And uh, There's no family advantage there.
2: <laughs> no, no. Although we had a guy who just retired and uh, uh, we had a gathering on Zoom to celebrate his being with us. And Scott was telling how when he first met uh, our colleague, he said, oh, are you the latest Owner and training. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was hilarious.
2: I <laughs> thought it was a great line.
1: <laughs> oh my god, I love it. Okay, let's go to the the books because you know I know you've written two books on your own, and you know I do think for listeners, could you just take them through how the one minute manager did come to be? Because that is a pretty funny story. Of course, Margie's involved with that.
2: Well, uh, we were invited. Uh, in 1980, we had decided to stay in San Diego and we had started our company. Uh, Adelaide Bree, who was quite an author. She was one of the first people writing about, uh, you know, mental healing and all. And she wrote visualizations, directing the movies of your mind. <clears throat> and she decided to have a party for authors in San Diego. And somehow I qualified because I had management of organizational behavior. <laughs> and so we went and, uh, Spencer was there and he had written a bunch of children's books with his wife called The Value Tales, you know, the value of courage, the story of Jackie Robinson, the value of determination, the story of Keller, the value of believing in yourself. And and, uh, they sold tons of these books and uh, Margie met him first at this party and she hand carried him over to me and said, you two ought to write a children's book together. (laughs) And Spencer was working on a one-minute scolding with a psychiatrist. and So uh, I invited him to a seminar I was doing the next week at the Rancho Bernardo Inn in San Diego. And He came and sat in the bag and laughed and all, and came running up at the end and said, forget parenting, let's do the one-minute manager. And since he was a children's book writer and I'm a storyteller, we decided to write a parable, you know. And uh, so in addition to the scolding, which we turned into one-minute reprimand, you know, uh, i had the goal setting and the praising uh thing down and we ended up doing that and and uh we met in november and had a draft of that total book by the end of december just with a bunch of people to share with them on their way up to the rose bowl to, <laughs> to stay overnight and watch the watch the game and so it was one of those things that wrote us and uh So when we finished, I said, Spencer, let's go to New York and get a publisher's no. He said, they don't know us. They'll beat us up and take all the money. He said, let's self-publish it and show them that we got something. And so we ended up self-publishing it. And through the YPO, Young President's Organization, we sold 20,000 copies with no advertising. I mean, it was really unbelievable. And so we went to New York. We had a record, you know. And uh, so it actually came out nationally. And. In uh, 1982, and uh, so uh, it was—it uh, was one of those journeys, you know. And and then uh, Spencer went off and started doing other things, and and I got on him and and said, "You need to write your cheese story," because he always told me about who would my cheese. And finally, I got him to write it, and I wrote the forward. And God, he sold only. Poor guy only 26 million copies of the who moved my cheese oh my god uh, and uh, so it's uh, uh unfortunately spencer died a couple of years ago it was really sad he got cancer and and quite a quite a guy and i've been very blessed uh, to have wonderful co-authors my mom always said why don't you write more books by yourself you know <laughs> i said i already know what i know that'd be kind of boring and so I've only written two or three at most by myself uh the rest i just love to learn from other people you know and i met this gal by the name of molly uh, recently and i think she'd really be a good co-author for something so i don't know if we can work it out but she's so busy you know and all that
1: <laughs> oh my smile just got even bigger it's spectacular you know this this lifelong learning and the love and the collaboration of people, you know, this whole, you know, one has to have, be so grounded in themselves. And I, I'm wondering when you look out and people come to your courses and what have you, um, and I'm thinking that you can kind of see it in people when they're just not able to give themselves permission to kind of let go and to to be themselves. And you know, what would you say for folks who maybe are hanging on a little bit tight or trying to steer a little more than perhaps they need.
2: One of the things we did in our Lead Like Jesus ministry, Phil Hodges and I started a 12-step Egos Anonymous, because I think the biggest thing that holds people back is the human ego. I mean, it's good to feel good about yourself, but uh, the two ways that your ego gets in 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 your way is one is false pride. When you have a more than philosophy, you act like, you know more, you're smarter than and all. And the other is fear of self-doubt where you have a less than philosophy and, and all. And a lot of people said, you know, how can, you know, a self-doubt be an ego problem? I said, what are you focused on when you have self-doubt? And uh, it's interesting about false pride, the, the more than philosophy. The guy that years ago wrote, I'm okay, you're okay, said that the worst life position was, I'm okay, you're not, but all the research showed that people who act like I'm okay, you're not, are really covering up no, not okay feelings about themselves. And I have found, Molly, all the, the top managers and middle managers and all who are a problem, they're scared of little kids inside because they don't want people to know that they really don't know everything and don't have all the answers, and I said, you shouldn't have all the answers. That's why you have people working with you. And, and the, the key to getting over false pride is humility. And a lot of people think that's a weakness. And yet Jim Collins in his book, book Good to Great, found that the two characteristics of great leaders was resolve, which is determination to solve, a, uh, accomplish a goal and all. And then humility. Initially, he said to his researcher, how could humility be number two? And they said, kept on coming back, Jim, it is because people often think it's a weakness. And yet, I don't know if it was C.S. Lewis or some people say it was Rick Warren said, uh, people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. And so it's good to feel good about yourself, you know? And I've always felt good about myself, why? Because my parents made me feel good about myself, but I can see my mother's finger right now. Don't you act like you're better than anybody else, you know? but don't let anybody else act like they're better than you. I'm always looking for that pearl of goodness in everybody. And it's just uh, been fun to kind of get out of your own way uh, so that you can, you know, work with other people. This book I wrote called Servant Leadership in Action, which is not a typical Blanchard book because it's about 300 pages, but it's uh, got 45 key people wrote short articles on Servant Leadership. I didn't want long articles and all, but I got, you know, Marshall Goldsmith and Brene Brown and Simon Sinek and Patrick Lencioni and Lori Beth Jones and, you know, you name it, they're all in there, Jim Cousins and, and Posner and, and all people say, how'd you get all those people? I say, because I cheer them on. I support them. I tell people about the good things they're doing. I don't say, you know, their stuff isn't as good as mine. Are you kidding me? We're all trying to help people. And why should I act like I'm better than them? Uh, See what we can learn from each other. That's what I love. And when I first talked to you, I went, whoa, whoa, man, I could learn something from that young lady.
1: (laughs) Well, I am humbled beyond words. And, you know, I just want to spread this around the universe. I'm so grateful for our listeners listening and know that you can play a role in this. Um, Ken, when you look around and you see some of the bigger organizations, the big corporates, you know, there's good people in there and there's smart people in there. Yet, the experience for a lot of people is that they cannot, they don't feel like they can be who they are. They don't feel like they can say what needs to be said. So, your thoughts on how, how we can all help um, some of these, and these big organizations are very important, you know, economically and, and, and socially. You know, what some things that you think need to happen um, to help us get better cultures?
2: Well, first of all, they need to have servant leaders who are running the organization. I mean, we we worked with American Express for years, and Ken Chenault was always in the first row of any training that we ever did. And and it makes such a difference, you know, when the top manager is, is behind things and understands things and doesn't think all the brains are in his or her office. If uh, you got people up the hierarchy who you know, or self-serving, you know, somehow you got to get a personal relationship with them so that you can have some influence on them. I remember when I was teaching in one one college and the dean wrote a lot about participative management uh, when he came in and he had written a lot and he didn't ever practice it. And the faculty would go into his office and tell him how inconsistent he was with his theories and he'd throw him out of the office. And so I, I agree with the faculty's response, but I knew I needed to develop a relationship with the dean first before I could impact him. And so I stopped in the hall and I said, George, you've done a lot of writing. I'm, I was just getting going. I'm booking an article I want to get published. Would you be willing to really, really give me some feedback? He said, sure. And I went in his office and he had flip charts and all. We, we ended up having three meetings on feedback on my writing in the middle of the third meeting, he says to me, Ken, what do you think we should do with all the jerks we got in this uh, college? You know, And the, minute, the key word for me is, what can we do? Now I knew I was on his team. And I not only could tell what we could do with the faculty, but what he could do. And he would listen, because if you give feedback to somebody, you are taking something from the relationship. So you need to have something uh, in your bottle. So it's almost like, like water in a bottle, you know. If there's no water in there, you know, <laughs> if you got no relationship, you better have a you know mask and a gun if you want to try to have an influence. But if you uh, have a good relationship, you can take a little out by giving feedback, you know. And uh, so it's uh, it's important.
1: Yes, I really want to echo this because it is all about the relationship. And for folks who are talking about the jerks that work around them, you know, I I often say to folks, look at they're not in good relationship with themselves and to have compassion for that person because they're, you know, they're trying they're trying their best to be their best. They're not necessarily realizing what they're doing. And to have the compassion and to do what you did, which is to just create connection. And how can, you know, what is a way that you can go back and forth and um, be someone to, to help another person, to forge trust, um, and then to give, you know, people a chance to open up. And I do think that folks sometimes are not very patient with that. And they might say, well, the leader should know better. And I'm like, the should word, you know, I'm kind of done with the should word. You know, the That's deal great. is, you know, if they, if, they knew, if, that, if they knew it, they'd be doing it. Okay, so they're not doing it. It's majority are good people. Yeah. And they, and they want
2: those, those people that don't want to change. Those are the ones Gary Ridge says that you should share with the, with your competition.
1: <laughs> yes. We have an answer. We have an answer. Share with your competition.
2: Share them with your competition. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, I think most people want to learn if, if you develop a relationship with them and they think that you're, you care about them, that they'll, they'll listen, you know I mean? Cause you know, as I said, you know, you you want to keep on learning. And um, and so uh, I think people do want to get better. And if they trust you, they'll listen. Yeah.
1: You know, your writing style, I am wondering, and I do think it's hilarious that early on someone said, you're a crappy writer. You need to be an administrator. And it was completely the opposite. Yeah. How have you honed your writing skill and found your voice, you know, and coming from someone who's not, it's not my favorite thing to do. I don't think I'm so great at it. I'm wondering just how, how did you become so proficient? How have you grown and how are you continuing to grow as a writer?
2: Well, I actually say I worked with a lot of co-authors, but also I've been really blessed. I have two editors that work with me and also help other departments in the country. You've already uh, met Martha Lawrence, who was just a, amazing person. She actually wrote a bunch of books, novels. Uh, she was unfortunately part of a serial rape about 20 years ago. And and uh, they finally caught the guy and she had to go and identify him with other people. But she was going to a therapist and said, you know, you're a writer because she was an editor for a hardcast grave for Branovich and some other companies. Uh, why don't you write a book about this? And so Uh, a novel and solve the mystery and so she created this character Elizabeth Chase and wrote a series of novels of mystery novels and the last one she was working on she woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and said what am I contributing to the world but you know evil and all that and so she heard about me and and found out what our temporary hiring agency was and she came in uh, answering the phone at our front desk (laughs) and our accountant comes into the building. She sees Martha Lawrence on the reception desk, the name. She said, you're not in a relation to my favorite author, are you? <laughs> she comes running upstairs. She says, Ken, you know who's answering the phone downstairs? And then Martha ended up uh, training Renee Broadwell, who's in, also works with this. And so I think that a lot of problems with people who write is that they, keep on grinding their teeth and trying to figure it out all themselves, get help. You know, we all could use some help and some other eyes and all that kind of thing. And so I just love to work with other people and work with editors and co authors. And cause then it makes it be fun. It's I uh, I don't like to grind my teeth.
1: <laughs> I get that. So I have to imagine 65 books. Have there been any that we're we're trying? Have they all been just unicorns and rainbows? I'm I'm curious your reflection on the the portfolio.
2: Well, they've all been pretty much uh, fun. I've got a chance to work with some well known people, and then a number of people work in our company. But uh, it's uh, it's fun because you know we're writing parables usually and fun stuff, and and you know our editors. Uh, work with them and most of them say, wow, this is really, really interesting. You know, and besides Vincent appeal, I wrote with Don Shula, the old Miami Dolphins uh, coach and, you know, uh, Gary Ridge and, and Colleen Barrett, who took over as presidency of Southwest and just some fascinating people. And, uh, just, just fun, you know, because, uh, if it wasn't fun, I wouldn't do it. And, uh, so I, I get to know them first before I agree to, to, to finally do a book and see what kind of people they are. Are they going to be fun or not?
1: <laughs> I love the fun factor. I had this question. The chief spiritual officer as a title, was yeah. that just like you're like, I have to be that? Did someone else suggest that? I'm just wondering where that came from.
2: Well, Margie was initially the president of our company, and then after a while she. Uh, I wrote a book with a fellow from Europe, Terry Waghorn, number of years ago called Mission Possible. And we said that as a leader of a company, there's two areas that you have to be able to manage. One is the present and the other is the future. And we argue that a lot of companies make a mistake of taking people with present time responsibilities and sending them off to future plan. And we argue that they probably will kill the future because they're either overwhelmed with the present or a vested interest. So you ought to actually, and I haven't gotten a lot of people to buy the whole concept, but it is you ought to have a president for the future and a president for the present, you know. And so when Margie heard that idea, she said, man, I want to head up the, the future. That's fun because she loves to read and all that kind of thing. And uh, so uh, part of the thing is they, they started to do some studies. And, and uh, they uh, one of the studies they did was... Is what creates spirit in the workplace, and I got really interested in in that, you know. And so I thought, wow, that's really what I want to do is create spirit in the workplace. And so maybe I ought to be the chief spiritual officer, you know. It wasn't necessarily initially a faith-based, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and uh, so I just I didn't like the title chairman of the board, you know. I just you know I want to go yawn on that one, you know. So but. Chief Spiritual Officers is, is a fun title where I can you know do do neat things and and um, so it it's it's, uh, it's it's great
1: would you share for folks just describe the culture of your company so what is it like
2: yeah well, I think that uh, we try to make sure that it's a it's a family place i mean because here we're all family and all in fact a lot of people get a kick out of it if we have an opening in our company and one of our team members of the company uh, nominates a, a friend or a relative and they get the job we give them a 400 dollar bonus uh, cuz we want them to gather all their friends and relatives who are good people you know uh, there you know we had one couple that worked with us at one point I had two or three kids that also <laughs> worked with us you know and people say we well, can't have husbands and wives working together why not those are all rules that that people have, you know, and so we want people to think of it as as uh, their home. that was really what was tough on the downsizing thing of you know separating people from their family you know and and us losing family uh, members so it's a we just want that whole family culture and I think that you know Margie's always you know pushed that and so uh, And the kids have picked it up. And so uh, uh, I think people like to come to work because they're with people that, that are fun and they like to be with. You know, we don't want jerks working with us. They can go work for somebody else, you know. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I love the get back to basics. It doesn't have to, we're not trying to make it complicated, keep it simple. And uh, you know, I I know you had mentioned a tough time. We had talked about some of these tough conversations that people had share, share with us how um, Scott was, you know, was so heartful and skillful in how he handled that. Cause I I know that's unfortunately an experience a lot of folks have. Well, um,
2: it was tough. And then initially he looked at, uh, who had been with us the longest, you know, who we could actually put on an early retirement program, you know, which would be to their advantage and all, uh, and uh, see how many we could do on that. Now, that really was tough because now we're losing real family members and and all. And <clears throat> But uh, Scott, ever since he took over presidents, uh, you know, in January of 19, you know, two thousand on 20 in January, uh, he, uh, he uh, shared with everybody in the company uh, in a meeting, what his leadership point of view was and what his values were. And he said, I'm gonna to try to operate on, on four values. One is forthrightness. I want you to know that I'm gonna tell you what I know and what I don't know, uh, I'll tell you the truth. He said the second is mastery because you know we're going to have to constantly be learning and all. Uh, and the uh, the uh, third big one is kindness, you know. And he said those are actually going to be three rather than four big ones that I'm going to focus on. And uh, ever since he started, and he just did his 56 something. Uh, weekly newsletter to the company where he tells them what he knows and what he doesn't know and what's happening and all. And everybody really appreciates that. And he said, I don't want anybody to be in the dark, you know? And so everybody that, you know, as we were getting up to the point where it was going to be, obviously we're going to have to let go. Everybody knew it was coming, you know? And uh, in fact, this number of people said, you know, uh, came and said, you know, I really could retire, you know, and, and that would probably help you, wouldn't it, you know, and all that. And then the people that weren't retired, we initially furloughed them, you know, and uh, but uh, his, his uh, tough conversations that he had is he had both he and them sharing from their hearts, you know, he wasn't there, and I'm going to tell you, you know, he said, Ah boy, I've, I've, this is a tough time and these are, these are tough things I'm going through and I, I just want you to know what's, what's on my heart and, and I want to talk to you about it and see where we might go together. And, you know, and people just, just you know, it's just, uh, I think it's the way to go. You know? it's, uh, I think the great leaders, uh, Molly I've read, uh, run into have a we philosophy rather than me. We're in this thing together. It's not about me and the hierarchy and my power and all that thing. And Scott's learned enough. He's funny. He's a great speaker, and he'll he'll uh, tell people in the beginning. He said, "You probably want to know what it was like to be the one-minute son." <laughs> he said, "When I was young, I would get in trouble a lot, which you did." And he said, "I wish, you know, I was sent to my room or even spanked when I was little." But no, I had to go down to the dinner table at night and talk to my sister and my mom and dad about how my behavior was inconsistent with family values, which, of course, we developed at an off-site retreat. (laughs) uh, So uh, they, they kind of knew they were part of the whole belief system.
1: You know, it's hilarious the one minute son that is torture you'd rather sit in your room not have dinner but to have to sit there and confront your family here is how my behavior was inconsistent with family values that is <laughs> well,
2: torture the kids also would call me when i was inconsistent you know i remember one time scott had a big truck when he was a teenager because he's a great water skier margie my wife was a champion water skier and uh So we told him just don't park it in the driveway, you know, I mean, it just blocks everything and all. One day I come up, here it's right in the middle of the driveway and Margie and I couldn't get in and out. And when he came home with his friend, boy, did I go out in the street and tell him what he did wrong and how I felt about it and all. Then I turned around and kind of started a storm back into the house. He jumped out of his friend's car and he yelled, Dad, you forgot about the, the last part of the reprimand. I'm a good kid. This is so unlike me. <laughs> oh God. So, was, uh, yeah, they were,
1: that is they were something. It was crazy. You know, talk about the, the next generation, the kids who are uh, in school or the, the, the little ones that are around you, and uh, what do you wish for them, and what are you most enthusiastic about them?
2: Well, our, our youngest uh, grandchild is 15. And so, uh, but the others are all in their 20s. And one, uh, we got a granddaughter who's turned 30. And um, right now they're all doing their own thing. And, uh, but suddenly they're starting to look and say, hmm, maybe there might be something. It's almost like Scott and Debbie, you know. I mean, <laughs> because they didn't come working with us until they were actually in the late twenties, early thirties. And, and uh, so we'll just, just see we haven't, haven't pushed them on it, but uh, Marty's also uh, organizing a legacy planning uh, meeting, you know, with, with all the grandkids and everybody just about, you know, what's going forward, you know, with the company and, and all, and, the, you know, we're in our 80s. We're not going to be around uh, forever. And what do we want to do with the money we might leave and, you know, and all that kind of thing. So it's a, they're going to be involved in a couple of meetings on that. So it's going to be interesting. And this includes Margie, brother Tom and his wife, Jill, and then their two kids. So it's a, I think we have about 12 of us involved in the whole thing. So uh, it's going to be a, be fun because uh, they're they're important in our lives and want to make sure that they get a chance to do what they want. And if it makes sense for them to be in the company, well, then good.
1: Yeah, that is such a gift. I, I just I think it's so wonderful to have the working relationship and just just the open communication that you have with the ability for people to also chart their own way. Um, that is, as you know, a very unique thing to have created for the Blanchard clan. So my kudos, kudos to you on that. You know, um, as we wrap here, I am wondering, um, do you have any regrets Ken that you'd share or I call, I'll even call them do overs as you think back.
2: I can't really think of any, you know, because anything that might've been, I probably turned into a learning experience. You know, I'm, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, Mar- Margie says, I'm the ultimate positive thinker, you know, and so when Norman Vincent Peale and I got together, she's, you know, everybody just laughed because we had so much fun, and uh, and that uh, uh, my mom and dad, I said, went to his church before I was born, and so it's, uh, to me, uh, uh, everything's been been a learning experience, and what where can I go from here? And I think it's a a lot of it is playing competitive sports, you know. Because I think that I found top managers and people who didn't play competitive sports sometimes get uptight because things don't go wrong. They don't know how to rally. Well, you know, if you play competitive sports, if you have, you don't win every game, you know, <laughs> and you gotta Newsflash. get, you gotta get up and and go, you know. And uh, so I think that's really helped me, you know, through playing competitive uh, basketball and golf and and all that kind of thing it's really been been fun and uh, and I think helped me in life really and and say uh, say Margie was a champion water skier and competed in that area and so it was really we've had a lot of fun um, she's the master of the lake up at skinny Atlas because she trained everybody to do everything. <laughs>
1: Wow! Uh, can I tell you, I've never gotten up on water skis. I'm gonna have to talk to her about that. Last question: uh, What's the biggest compliment someone's given you, Ken?
2: Biggest compliment is when people said to me, "How did you talk Margie into marrying you?" You know, I still get that <laughs> in reunions. You know, and because uh, I I did marry above myself. And uh, but I think uh, the uh, I just think that's just uh, been the the neatest thing, you know, that people really say, "You guys are just an amazing couple." We're going to be sixty years next year, and um, so it's a, uh, it's been fun. And and uh, I, when people praise me, I always I always appreciate it, you know, and and but don't go to my head or anything, uh, because I still remember my mother, don't you <laughs> People the kids will say, I got that same finger, pointing finger that my mother had. Uh, so is it uh it's life is really special and I I love to be around people that uh, are positive and, and enjoy what I do and I enjoy uh them. That's why I'm I'm really interested in and in have fun meeting people like you who I just look a oh, wow, you know, I mean I just am so excited about Simon Sinek and what he's going to contribute to this field and seeing where Patrick Flancione has gone. And, you know, I've known Marshall Goldsmith since he was 24 years old. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, just, uh, it's just fun. Life is a very special occasion. I'm glad I got an opportunity to be here. And, and, uh, and I'm kind of excited about what's uh, coming next, you know, Margie's great. She said, "I want to be the last one uh, to recognize that we were
1: wrong." Not you're just amazing. I um, am so grateful. You've been so generous. Um, your groundedness, your lightness, your humility—you know, just all over the top. And uh, you know, uh, for folks, is kenblanchard.com, kenblanchardbooks.com to find out more. Um, and just to close, just share with us, you know, what was it like to share your story? What was it like for you today?
2: Well, you know, I love to share my story. So I probably have done it too much because it's, uh, it just makes me, you know, think about my mom and dad and my, the blessings that I had in my life. And, and uh, you know, cause I run into a bunch of people who have, didn't have very good family things. And I say, wow, I was really blessed to, to have that you know my dad ended up retiring as an admiral and and uh it's just been uh, been quite a journey so i don't mind telling my story because i get excited about it myself
1: <laughs> i love it i love it i feel so blessed uh you know how to reach me if i can ever be of service to you your family or company you let me know i appreciate your time, and your heart. And I thank you, Ken, for being part of the solution. You take good care.
2: Well, good. Thank you, Molly. You're the best. God
1: (laughs) Ah, My thought for the week, one of Ken's many wisdom, none of us is as smart as all of us. And that's a wrap. My thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Ken's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
0: Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.